the Lord's Supper encourages us believers to live with an ongoing gratitude towards God as we have just sung. And one of the areas in which that gratitude shows up, one of the areas in which that gratitude manifests is by not taking what the Lord has not given us, by not trying to hold on to that which we are not allowed to have. And uh, one of the ways in which we live with gratitude is by appreciating and, and giving thanks to God for all that He has given us and He has allowed us to enjoy. One of the areas that the Lord has both called us to pursue and to uh, stay away from is the area of pursuing sexual purity and forsaking sexual immorality. This morning, we are starting a three-week series, uh, topical sermons, on the theme of pursuing sexual purity. And this topic is for everyone, even for older saints. Um, Even if you think that you are past the stage of life in which you are easily lured by sexual temptations, being able to encourage others and being able to talk to others about pursuing sexual purity or forsaking uh, sexual immorality is helpful and beneficial to all of us. Uh, You might feel like you are a person who has gotten this whole thing about sexual purity well, and you are are solidly, firmly uh, secure in knowing what to do. If uh, if you feel that way, praise God for that. Um, I want to encourage you to hold on to that with vigilance and not to be prideful in your own security about that issue. And second, if you feel that way, Um, Also consider encouraging others to pursue sexual purity. Now, the theme, this theme for the three Sundays is pursuing sexual purity, but it's divided up in in smaller categories. And this morning, we're going to look at sexual immorality and why that is a big deal. The the first theme that we're going to look at this morning, the first sub-point of our big three-week theme, is that sexual immorality is a big deal. Next week, by God's will, uh, we're going to talk about God's design for sexuality is beautiful. We would not want anyone to walk away from from these three-week series um, on on pursuing sexual purity thinking that somehow the Bible is against uh, the sexual experience. Um, The Bible is not against it. The Bible declares that the sexual experience is a beautiful experience if it's lived out the way God designed it. So next week, we're going to look at God's design for, sexual, for sexuality is beautiful. And on the third week, we're going to talk about the fight of the invisible battle with lust. Fight the invisible battle with lust. These are the three topics that we're going to address today, next week, and, and two weeks from today. But this morning, we want to look at the theme of sexual immorality is a big deal. Why start here? Why think and begin the series with the notion that sexual immorality is a big deal? Well, for one, because so many of the books of the New Testament make reference to sexual immorality. I want to challenge you to, as you think about reading Scripture, and reading the New Testament in particular, to observe how many books of the New Testament actually make reference or some sort of application uh, on the theme of, of sexual immorality. Second of all, Because as one author noted, sexual immorality is the arena in which Christians 
seem to be more muddled, more confused, more at odds with one another, and frankly, so much in the throes of disobedience. The same author observed that sexual behaviors and beliefs of many Christians are virtually indistinguishable from the world's. And she gives a number of statistics. The, the Barna group found that 41% of practicing Christians believe that cohabitation is a good idea. More than 60% of Christians on a Christian dating site said that they would have sex before marriage. 56% said that they thought it was appropriate to move in with someone. 32% of Christian men ages 18 to 30 admit to having an addiction to porn. The Pew Research Center found that 54% of Christians believe that homosexuality should be accepted rather than discouraged. But these statistics, whether true or not, whether there's a margin of error in them, um, does tell us at least the following fact that Christians do indeed seem to be confused or negligent or plainly disobedient to what Scripture has to say about sexual immorality. And yet the Bible is quite clear. And this is what we want to consider this morning. Sexual immorality is a big deal. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? We'll be reading from verse 9 to verse 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 21. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you, and you may find this passage on page number 954. Here's um, God's word for us. Actually, the passage starts on page number 955. Here's God's word for us. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Amen. Would you pray with me? 
asking God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts this morning. Father, would you help our hearts listen carefully and well with a mind that is open to your truth, to your revelation, to the, to the standards and the design that you have created for sexuality. Father, we pray that as we consider the theme of sexual immorality, that you would help us observe and hear well the, not only the warnings, but also the, the reasons why we should flee sexual immorality. We pray that you would do so. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that you would use a preaching of, of your word and give me clarity to de- de- declare it faithfully as you have in the, intended it to be. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. In this passage, the Apostle Paul refers three times to the language or the term of, of, of sexual immorality. Sometimes the Bible uses a very broad term like sexual immorality. Other times it refers to more specific acts or more specific uh, subcategories of sexual immorality, words like adultery or uh, homosexuality. The term for sexual immorality, or porneia, as it is in the Greek language, is used very broadly to refer to any and all sexual acts that are immoral or illegitimate in God's eyes. And you may wonder, well, what are the sexual acts that are illegitimate in God's eyes. Well, engaging in any form of sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman would be illegitimate sexual activity. Engaging in any form of sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman would be sexual immorality. Uh, that means uh, in having sexual intimacy with anyone who is not your spouse. This means and involves extramarital sex, premarital sex, or cohabitation, solo sex like masturbation or pornography, and same-gender same sex. All of these are included in the notion of sexual immorality. Now, why is sexual immorality a big deal? In the letter to the church uh, that was in Corinth, Paul addresses their misguided views of sexuality and sexual practice over the course of three chapters. He starts in chapter 5, continues in chapter 6, and continues in chapter 7. Just think the fact that over the course of three chapters, the Apostle Paul will take time to speak to the church in Corinth about their views of sexuality. The Corinthian church was deeply confused how to think and how to deal with sexual immorality. So sexual immorality is a big deal. In the passage we've just read, we're going to see six reasons why sexual immorality is a big deal. And if you're uh, taking notes, uh, consider these six reasons, whether you want to consider them for your own life or for how to talk to someone that you are aware of that needs to consider these matters. Uh, Six reasons why sexual immorality is a big deal. And the first reason is to ignore sexual immorality is to be deceived. To ignore sexual immorality is to be deceived. Earlier in chapter 5, Paul spoke uh, to the church about a specific case of sexual immorality that the Corinthian church allowed to go unaddressed and taught them how to, how to correct it and how to pursue public church discipline. In chapter 6, Paul speaks to them not only about, about that specific case, but more broadly about why they should 
all flee sexual immorality, even before it comes, to deal with it preventively, to think or to assume that Christians can continue to live in sexual immorality without eternal consequences is to be deceived. Look at verse 9. The apostle says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he begins giving a list of nine sins, starting with sexual immorality. In other words, those who continue to live in sexual immorality and, and the other nine sins mentioned, not just sexual immorality, but this one in particular now, because we're dealing with it now, those who continue to live in sexual immorality, even as Christians, are deceiving themselves. Continuing the path of sexual immorality has eternal consequences, regardless of what we claim about ourselves as being Christians. The Apostle Paul gave similar instructions when he wrote to the church in Ephesus. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, uh, because it's a passage that has also some very important instructions about sexual immorality. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul begins in verse 3 to say the following. I love the sound of hearing the pages of Scripture being turned. That's a good sound. Praise God for that. The Apostle Paul says the following, Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, let this sink in. God's ideal for his people is that sexual immorality and impurity must not even be named among the people of God. Now, this does not mean, this does not mean that we the church need to keep silent about church immorality. Uh, in other words, it does not mean that when it happens, uh, we just don't talk about it. Like we just put it under the cover or under the rug, sweep it under the rug. That's not what it means. It must not be named among you. Rather, it means that Christians are called to live in such a way that sexual immorality is not a way of life among us. Paul says that this is what's proper among saints. That it's not part of our living. And then he gives a reason in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The same eternal consequence is brought out both in 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5, that those who continue to live in sexual immorality they have an eternal consequence, and namely, that they cannot inherit the kingdom of God, no matter what you call yourself. And then Paul says, you may be sure of this. What can we be sure of? That those who live in sexual immorality and in impurity or covetousness won't receive the inheritance of the kingdom. And then Paul concludes in, in verse 6 of Ephesians 5, let no one deceive you with empty words. What are the empty words that you and I can be deceived by? Thinking that as a Christian we can live in sexual immorality and still be okay for eternity. That's a deception. Paul says don't be deceived. There are eternal consequences. 
Friends, for a Christian to have a loose attitude about sexual immorality is evidence of embracing the deception. Assuming that sexual immorality is a normal thing for Christians to experience is to be deceived. Occasionally, I hear this excuse from Christians. But so many have done it. It's so common. Or, we've all done it. Well, if such responses are used as a means of causing us to grieve, that's good. But if such responses are given as a way of excusing and, and sort of supporting being loose and, and, and superficial and, and not be too tight about this whole sexual immorality thing, then friends, that is sad. If sexual immorality is a, such a common experience even among Christians today, we should be grieved and ask one another, what can we do? to help one another forsake it, prevent it, and change the culture in our churches where such, such an experience is not the common thing. And the first step we can take is to recognize that to ignore sexual immorality is to be deceived. To be lenient with sexual immorality is to take the path of deception. I wonder if you consider a loose attitude about sexual immorality to be a sign of deception. The second reason why sexual immorality is such a big deal, the second reason is because the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. The first reason is because it's to be loose about it, to be, to be superficial about it is to be deceived. The second is to recognize that those who are sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 9 and 10 again do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then Paul, after describing the list of, of the nine sins, he, he again says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why is sexual immorality a big deal? Because it has eternal consequences. Paul reminds the Corinthians that prior to their salvation, this is how some of them used to live. He says, but such were some of you. Or, and such were some of you. But then he says, but you are saved. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the amazingly hopeful verse in this passage. It shows that God is able to save and rescue those, even those who live in sexual immorality, if they repent and trust in Christ. Those who have lived in sexual immorality can be washed. This is a very hopeful statement. So that if any of us feel and, and, and say, I've been there, or I am there, oh friends, the blood of Jesus is able to wash even the sin. There is no sin that the blood of Christ cannot wash away if we turn away from our sin, and trust in Jesus Christ. Oh friend, if anyone has lived in sexual immorality, I want to call you today to repent of it. I want to call you today to come to Jesus. He will not turn your back, his back on you. He will receive you. He will embrace you. But notice what happens when you come to Jesus. 
He washes you. He sanctifies you, which means He puts you apart for a different purpose. He changes your direction. And He he justifies you, which means He declares you righteous, even though you're not. He declares you righteous on the account of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Friends, only a holy and gracious God would be able to do that, and He's able to do that only because of what we have celebrated earlier in our service, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All those who would turn away from their sin and trust in the death of Christ and and His resurrection can be declared right before God, can be sanctified and washed. That is incredible news for all those who live in sexual immorality. But Paul says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. He's speaking now to Christians. The Christians of Corinth, he, Paul needs to remind them, these sins should be sins of the past. And because salvation is such a powerful and gracious act of cleansing, it also means that living the Christian life involves not continuing to live in sexual immorality. If in salvation a Christian has been cleansed and set apart for God's purposes, we can no longer continue to live in the same mud of open sinfulness and rebellion from which Christ washed us from. We can no longer continue to pursue and continue to live and hang on to and embrace the specific sin for which Jesus was crucified. For a Christian to continue in sexual immorality is dangerous for their eternal soul. Friends, do you believe that sexual immorality is dangerous for your soul? That's the second point that Paul gives him. When Christians are loosed in their view of sexual immorality, they are deceived, and they are deceived about their eternal consequence. But Paul doesn't stop here. He could have just stopped here. These two reasons would be enough to Tell the Corinthian church, stop living in sexual immorality. But Paul doesn't stop here. He gives him more reasons. And the rest of this passage, the reasons we're going to see, the the following four reasons of this passage, all have to do with an amazingly biblical view of a Christian's physical body. Paul will want to help the Christians in Corinth and us to understand the reason why sexual immorality is a big deal is because it assumes or we should have a biblical view of our body. So what are the biblical views of our body? The four next four reasons describe that. So reason number three, why sexual immorality is a big deal is because our bodies are members of Christ. Our bodies are members of Christ. In verses 12 to 17, Paul is addressing the the wrong views these believers had about their body. One of the wrong impressions that they had is that they, that whatever they would do in their body had no connection to their spiritual lives. So they thought they're free to do with their bodies whatever they wanted. The believers in the church in Corinth had adopted a slogan that they uh, misused and misapplied. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me. The same slogan shows up again. All things are lawful for me. 
This is likely a slogan that the Corinthian believers picked out from the culture around them. This is not necessarily what God says, all things are lawful for you. This is a, a misconception. This is what they were telling themselves. And Paul has to correct them. It may seem like this slogan has an appearance uh, with Christian freedom, freedom in Christ. And Paul says, oh, 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 wait, let's, let's clarify this. This is not about all things are lawful for me. Paul brings two corrections. And the corrections are that not all things are helpful and not, nothing will, should take dominion or take dominion, have dominion over me. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Or the Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. And Paul says, but I will not be nominated by anything. You see, Paul corrects their slogan. Instead of boasting about their, what they're free to do, Paul says that they should be more interested in what is helpful and what will not enslave them. In other words, if your claim to freedom, even if you might baptize it as Christian freedom, if your claim to freedom enslaves you, well, that is no freedom at all. And if your claim to freedom is not actually helpful for you, well, that is no freedom at all. Living in sexual immorality is an unexlaving experience. Anyone who has lived in sexual immorality can testify how difficult it is to break off of that way of life. So, friend, ask yourself if you are living with the assumption that whatever you do in your body has no effect on you or on your spiritual life. Paul would, would have none of that. Paul, in, in verse 13, addresses another slogan that led these believers to bad living. In verse 13, Paul exposes their false thinking again. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for the food. Again, this is, you see that in, in your text is in quote. That means he's quoting them or he's quoting the slogan. In other words, the slogan would say, well, feeding the body with food is normal. If I'm hungry, I feed it. If I have a desire, I should fulfill that desire. Why would God give me that desire if not to fulfill it? And Paul says, Feeding the body with food has a temporal effect. God will destroy the stomach. God will destroy the food. Both the stomach and the food will not last forever. But feeding the body with sexual immorality has eternal consequences. God created our bodies to have sexual desires. We'll talk more about that next week. But that does not mean that we can give our bodies to live in sexual immorality. God did not create the body for sexual immorality. Paul says in verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. In other words, instead of using our bodies for sexual immorality, our Creator intended for us to use our body for Him, for the Lord. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, and the Lord is meant for the body. In other words, the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. What does that mean? Well, God created our physical bodies with a view in mind that He would send His Son, Jesus, to take on a physical body, to become incarnate, to experience death in that physical body. And for what? For the sins that you and I 
create in the body. And then God raised Jesus with a new body. The incarnation of Jesus Christ and his resurrection show us how deeply God is committed for the body. And also, because after Jesus was resurrected and taken up to heaven, Jesus would call his followers to be members of his body. Now think about that. How committed is the Lord for the body? The Lord came to be incarnated in the human body. He was resurrected in a new body. And after being raised to the glory of God the Father, Jesus now calls his followers to be members of him, members of Christ. And this has a key implication for sexual immorality. Paul says in verse 15, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. This means that as believers, we view our bodies as members of Christ. A Christian's body is spiritually united to Christ so that what he does in his body or what she does in her body is done as a member of Christ. It's as if Christ is present through what the Christian does in his body. Paul asks, can Christ unite himself to a prostitute? Can the member of Christ unite himself to be one with a member who is a prostitute? And that's exactly what Paul asks in verse 15. Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And Paul says, never! Some might say, well, I am, I'm not going to prostitutes. I'm just sleeping with my girlfriend, or I'm just sleeping with my boyfriend, or my fiancé. Well, friends, whatever form of sexual immorality we might be tempted to engage in, consider that your body acts as a member of Christ. With Christ, through his body, look at pornography. With Christ, through his body, give himself to live in sexual immorality. Consider that whatever temptations you are facing, or whatever actions you are living out in sexual immorality, you are, as a believer, if you are a believer, you are acting as a member of Christ. Your union with Christ means that whatever you do, you drag Christ into it. So the reason why, the third reason why sexual immorality is a big deal is because our bodies are members of Christ. And it is impossible to unite Christ to sexual immorality. He was crucified to pay for that. Why would he be united to live in that? Oh, friends, consider your body as members of Christ. A fourth reason why sexual immorality is a big deal. A fourth reason is because our bodies are a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? The Holy Spirit is a sanctuary in the body or makes the body of a believer to be a sanctuary at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit begins dwelling in us. What it means to be saved is, it means it is to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And when the Holy Spirit begins dwelling in us, 
He makes our bodies become a temple or a sanctuary. So our bodies are the residence and the, the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. What we do in our bodies is not just a matter of your own private decision. It's like beginning to have someone live in your house or your apartment. You know when you have people visiting or if they stay a longer time? The house routine changes a little bit. You don't do exactly everything the way you did when no one else is in the apartment or in the house. Your body, the Apostle Paul says, is like the residence when, when, and someone else is starting to dwell in your residence. The difference is that the Holy Spirit comes not just as a temporary guest once in a while for a short time. When he comes in the life of a believer, he moves in permanently. And he's not just moving in permanently. He's beginning to treat your house as a house of worship and expects you to begin treating your house also as a house of worship. So your body is a dwelling place and a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. Paul said the same point earlier in, the, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul uses this language to refer to the whole church, the body, the local church in Corinth. But in 1 Corinthians 6, he's using the picture of the sanctuary the Holy Spirit referring to the individual believer. Christian, do you realize that your Christian life is not just about what you do in your spirit, in your heart, in your thinking, but also what you do in your body? We're not Christians merely in our hearts. We're not Christians merely in our minds. We're not Christians merely in our spirits. We are Christians in our bodies. The reason why this matters for our talk about sexual immorality is that to allow our bodies to engage in sexual immorality, it's as if you are turning God's house into a venue for sin. You know, once in a while we hear or see that churches, in terms of their physical property, get sold. Sometimes they get sold to businesses and they're transformed. Instead of being a church place, a place of worship, it has become, let's say, a dealership of cars or some other business use. We hear that in Europe, uh, churches are bought and turned into mosques. And it grieves us that a place of worship for the true God has been turned into a place of worship for a false god or, or used for other, uh, other just business ventures. Now, imagine, imagine if a property was bought, a church property was bought and was sold to a business that turned it into a brothel. Just hearing that grieves, at least my soul, that the place that used to be used for, for worshiping God together as a congregation is now turned into a place where, where people live out sexual immorality day in, day out. For some, it might even be sacrilegious. And yet, 
That is exactly what happens when a believer would give his body for sexual immorality. That which, is, which the Holy Spirit has put aside to be used for the worship of God is now transformed and changed to be used for sexual immorality. Friends, our bodies are not merely physical bodies. For the Christian, our bodies are the dwelling place, the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. That's a fourth reason. A fifth reason why sexual immorality is a big deal is because our bodies are not our property any longer. Our bodies are not our property any longer. Paul challenges Christians to view their body as having a different owner. Look at verse 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. In other words, our body is God's property, not our own. Now, why is it not our own? Paul could have said, because God made you. If God made you, that means you belong to Him. That would be a good reason. But notice the reason why Paul says you're not your own. He says, for you're bought with a price. In other words, God purchased us. Therefore, our entire being, both our soul and our body, is God's property. Now, what is the price that God paid for our purchase? The apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Friends, our salvation was given to us freely. We don't pay a price for our salvation. Our salvation required a price that even if we wanted to pay, we could not pay. The price was so high. So our salvation is without price to us. But the price paid for our salvation, that price was also a price that purchased us. Think about that. It's not that we pay the price. It's that in the price that Jesus paid for our salvation, He actually bought us. He actually owns us. So, Jesus paid the price to purchase you and I. Friends, that means that we should not think that the price Jesus paid is only for a spiritual salvation. Jesus paid the price to purchase even our bodies so that our bodies would no longer own anything to sin, so that we would no longer think of our bodies as being owned by us. Jesus paid the price to purchase our salvation, and that involved purchasing our bodies so that we are no longer ours. If our bodies are not our property, but God's property, there's an important implication, and this is the sixth reason why sexual immorality is a big deal. The sixth reason and the final reason, our bodies are an arena for worship. Our bodies are an arena for worship. What we do with our bodies is a means of bringing glory to God. Friends, we glorify God not only by expressing praises with our mouths, 
not only by gathering together on Sundays to worship Him together, although both of these are very biblical ways in which we glorify God, but we also glorify God through that which we do in our bodies. And keeping our bodies away from sexual immorality is one of the clear ways we glorify God with our bodies. Friends, fleeing sexual immorality is an act of worship. Because when we pursue purity, we actually worship God and glorify Him. That's why sexual immorality is such a big deal. It's the opposite of glorifying God. Sexual immorality is like the fruit of false worship. Sexual immorality is not the ultimate problem. Sexual immorality is the fruit of the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is a false worship. It's a broken worship. When we fail to worship God properly, one of the fruits of that false worship is sexual immorality. It's not the only fruit of wrong worship, but it's one of the clear fruits, one of the common fruits. That's exactly why the Apostle Paul, when he spoke in Romans 1 about how people choose to, to worship something other than the true God, what is the fruit of that decision? When people refuse to give thanks to God, to be full of gratitude to the one true God, and when they don't acknowledge Him and don't live for Him, what is the fruit of that? For Romans chapter 1 says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images re resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, what's the result of false worship? God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Friends, the fruit of false worship is sexual immorality. Or sexual immorality is a fruit of false worship. This means that a proper way of protecting against sexual immorality is to consider what true worship is. True worship engages and involves your body. To fix sexual immorality, we must fix our worship. Your worship of God, my worship of God, involves pursuing sexual purity. So when you take steps of accountability, when you seek out a discipling relationship to help you grow or protect yourself or, or flee sexual immorality, you are worshiping God. Because our bodies are not our own, we're called to worship God with our bodies. Friends, sometimes we hear the phrase, that, and it's a biblical phrase, that God calls true worshipers, true worshipers are those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus says that. But if the application we take from that verse is that what we do in our bodies doesn't matter, well, then we are misapplying that principle. We worship God not just in our spirits. We also worship God in our spirits and in our bodies because what we do with our bodies is an act of worship. Friends, have you considered that what you do with your body is an instrument of worship to God? Or do you think that worshiping God is just what you do on Sunday? or just what you do in your heart, or what, what you do in your spirit. As long as your heart tells you you're fine with God, you might think you're fine. Oh, friends, don't think that way. Your heart could be telling you that you're right with God, and in your, in your body you are worshiping someone other than God. Consider that pursuing purity in your body is an act of worship. 
even when no one sees you. So some practical applications for us. Parents, be intentional in speaking to your children about sexual purity. Don't assume that they will naturally be inclined to pursue purity. No one, none of us in our natural bodies are inclined to pursue purity. We must be given that. We must be taught that from God's Word and be given that through the Holy Spirit. Everything in our world is set on teaching our children a distorted view of sexuality. Right now, the city of Austin is trying to, to approve a, a curriculum to be taught in the Austin Independent School District that would teach children from a very young age a view of sexuality that is very, very distorted. Parents, be on guard. Be aware. And don't assume that you can afford to be silent with your children about sexual immorality. Begin that conversation early. Begin that conversation positively. Begin that conversation seriously. Brothers and sisters, don't be afraid of bringing up conversations with one another about sexual purity. As a church, we should not be ashamed or should not think that, well, that's just a little too personal or too private. Men, don't be ashamed to bring up questions about how to protect yourself among or against pornography. And I should say, it's not just for men, it's also for women. If any man or woman among us has been following the trap of pornography, I want to encourage you to speak to, to any of the elders about it or consider to speak to another mature Christian of the same gender as you are. Younger women, consider approaching older women among us to open up and talk about any questions related to pursuing purity. Those who are considering to be or to start a relationship, a romantic relationship towards marriage, consider speaking to your partner, to the, their boyfriend or girlfriend, early about the boundaries of your relationship. What are the physical boundaries that you are putting in place at the beginning of your relationship? Guard the purity of your relationship early on. Guard it for the other person and guard it for your own heart as well. If sexual immorality has been a part of your past, I want to encourage you to run to Christ as soon as you can, now, immediately after this service. The evidence of your genuine return to Christ is a life of pursuing holiness moving forward, pursuing a life of purity moving forward. And for us as a church, sexual immorality is a matter that we should be open to confront lovingly calling one another to turn away from it for the sake of Christ. And if one persists in sexual immorality, the church is called to pursue biblical church discipline, just as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 5. What would it look like for us as a church to cultivate such relationships among us that we grow in pursuing holiness together? Friends, I want to let you know, and we want to be a kind of congregation, that when some among us might fall in the trap of some form of sexual immorality, it is safe for you to come and speak about it to someone here in this congregation. Safe for the purpose of rescuing. Safe, safe for the purpose of helping you run away from it, turn away from it. If you are considering to stay in it, one of the signs, and you want to stay in it, 
One of the signs that oftentimes happens when people with those who are falling in sexual immorality and they, and they want to stay in it is that they begin showing up to church less and less because they don't want to help be held accountable. They don't want to be helped. Let's consider we want to be a safe place for those who are struggling with sexual immorality and encourage them to flee to Christ. But we will not encourage you to stay in it. We will not encourage you or give you assurance that staying in it is right. Because as Paul told us, it has eternal consequences. What would it look like for us as a congregation to continue to live in such a way, to build a culture among us pursuing holiness that it is proper among saints, that sexual immorality would really shock us when it happens. It's not the normal thing. We would be, we would be concerned. We would, we, would be, we would be grieved deeply and not treated lightly. We want to encourage one another why sexual immorality is a big deal. We want these reasons to be part of what we do as a congregation. So let me remind you the six reasons why sexual immorality is a big deal. Because to ignore sexual immorality is to be deceived. That was point one. Because sexual immorals will not inherit the kingdom of God. That was point two. Because our bodies are members of Christ. That was point three. Because our bodies are a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. That was point four. Because our bodies are not our property any longer. That was point five. Point six, because our bodies are an arena for worship. This is how God designed us. When he made us as physical bodies, when he redeemed us and set us apart for his purposes, this is how God has designed for us to use our bodies. May we as a congregation consider using our bodies, surrendering them to the Lord, using them exclusively for his purpose, and encouraging, us one, another, encouraging one another when we falter in it to pick it up again, turn to Christ, and walk in purity. May the Lord help us do so. Let's pray.